Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. We're in a series of the church called Who We Are. What is the church? And uh, we're looking at that, and so far we've looked at a a number of topics, who we are as a gathered church, as a worshipping church, as a a group of people who are filled by this God's spirit to to be his representatives in the world. We've talked about being a diverse church. And today we're going to talk about being a missional church, which is, I guess, uh, seminal to our whole service today. What does it mean to be the church in mission? What does that mean for us? You know, if I were to say to you, um, after the service, I want you to come and, and come, come with me to my place. And you say, well, how do I get there? And I'd say to you very simply, maybe not simply, I'd say, look, when you get out the gate of, of the church, turn right, go down Oakey Flat Road, becomes New Settlement Road, and when you've gone down there a few, through a few um, roundabouts, you'll come to the Bruce Highway. There's a lot of roadworks there. Make sure you get in the right lane, but just cross over and then turn right onto the Bruce Highway. And you travel down the Bruce Highway about 10, um, 10 kilometres. You go through past the Great West, the Westfield Shopping Centre. And after that, you've got to veer left when the Bruce Highway does a bit of a turn and you can veer left down onto the Gateway Motorway. And when you get in the left lane, and make sure you're in that left lane, get onto the Gateway Motorway, you travel down there about, about 25 k's and you come to a big bridge and Make sure you get in the right way. Get, get over that bridge. Make sure you get in the right and the correct lanes because you don't turn up towards the, the port. You actually go straight on across that bridge for another quite a few kilometres. And where that gateway meets um, the Pacific motorway, make sure you're in the left lane so that you can curve around on the Pacific motorway. Don't go straight on down the gateway. Get down the Pacific, but don't go in the middle of the road. Stay on the left lane because when you get in the left lane, the first exit... I think it's 19 or 20, I'm not quite sure, is the exit to Rochdale. And you get under that exit. When you take the exit, there's lights ahead. Don't go ahead of the lights. Turn left, very sharp left, 45 degrees it is. Make sure you go up there, travel up Rochdale Road, go past four turns to the right. On the fifth turn to the right, take that road. That's my street. You travel up there about 400 k's. 400 k's, 400 metres. That's a very long road. Travel up there about 400 metres and my home's on the left on the corner of another road going off it. And when you get there, just park your car and come in and I'll make you coffee. I could give you those instructions or else to simplify that to get you from here to there, I could just simply say, come follow me. Come follow me. And Jesus, when he began his ministry on earth with a whole bunch of people, didn't give them books and, you know, projects and didn't give them seminars. He just said, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. It was come and be disciples and I'll help you become people who disciple other people, who, who reach out with the love of God, my Father, to other people. Come follow me and we'll do that together. It's an extraordinary invitation to mission that isn't complicated. It's not confused. It's quite simple, profound, but sometimes very difficult. Come follow me. And as I said, we've 
talked to someone this morning who said, okay, I'll follow you, and that's taken her to the other side of the world with her husband and family and taken them to the other side of the world. It's, we're here, it's taken us here, and whatever that means for us. But that's the, I guess the theme I want to talk about today is being a missional church, being a missional people who are prepared to say, when you say, Jesus, come follow me, we'll do it. We don't know all the instructions, we don't know all the routine and rigmarole, but we'll do it. So I want to read to you this morning from the missional diary of the New Testament, which is the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the missional diary. It it tells the story of the church following the the crucifixion and the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, and a little few days later, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, where the church was birthed, and it began a journey. And the book of Acts is the story of that journey, or the first part of that journey. That journey is still going on. But I want to read to you part of that journey in the book of Acts. It's where the story comes of the church at Ephesus getting a start and Paul being part of that story at Ephesus. So I want to read to you from Acts chapter 19. You'll see the words come up on the screen. Acts 19 starting at verse 8. It's it's quite an extraordinary story of a start of that church. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had, been, that had touched him were taken to the sick and the illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Strange, right? Some Jews who went around driving at evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them. He gave them such a beating that day that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who'd practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. That's just one story of the message of the kingdom and the mission of the kingdom going wide. It's an extraordinary story, this church at Ephesus, a very multicultural kind of church in a large town, not Christianized at all by this stage, small beginnings. A lady who was down by a river leading other God-fearing women. Then a a young woman who was telling fortunes who got converted. Then a jailer. And then a little bit later on, a couple called Aquila and Priscilla came along and they gathered people around. That was the beginning of a church beginning of a group of people following Jesus. And into that scene comes Paul, who's 
eventually preaching and being unpopular in some areas, so gathers a group of people around him and causes us as people to address some very crucial questions. And, you know, each church is different in in the book of Acts, but the questions are similar. And I want to suggest there are four questions that this story causes us to ask in terms of being a missional church. Because it's nice words, they're great thoughts, but what does it mean to be a missional church? And so there are four questions, and I want to just share those with you. They're very simple questions, but they're quite profound in terms of asking that. And the first question is this. Is the Great Commission real? Now, of course you're going to say to me, of course it's real. The Great Commission, it's it's spoken of a few times in the Scriptures, you know, go into all the world and make disciples, baptising them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey the things that I've told you. He also puts it slightly different and comes differently in Mark's gospel. Go and preach the gospel to all nations. In the book of Acts, it says you'll, be, you'll receive power when the Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. But whichever one of those commissions you read, they all tell the same thing. There's a commission out there. There's a, a profound call out there for us to make a difference. You know, in... I mentioned before, Jesus just said, come follow me. In, in, in the Jewish history of the time, if you were, by the time a young Jewish man was 10 years of age, he would be able to quote by rote, by, by memory, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And if you're an exceptional young man, by the age of 15, you could also quote the Psalms and the Proverbs and a good amount of the prophets as well. If you're an exceptional young man, and if you, were, if you were exceptional and you were kind of seen as elite in that space, then you would be given, asked to get a rabbi, a rabbi who would teach you and prepare you to become a rabbi yourself. But if you weren't that clever, and if you weren't part of that elite, you couldn't do all that and you were just sort of an average teenager, you would go back into your family and pick up the family business and, and whatever that family business was, whether it's stonemasonry or fishing or, you know, um, whatever it was uh, in, the, in that business, you'd, you'd just go back and do the family business. And so the 12 people that Jesus chose were not the elite. They were back in the family business. They were just uh, fishermen. They were ordinary people who, who did their stuff. Should I use another mic? Is that going to be a better thing to do? Okay, that's all right. No, maybe I'll use another mic. Should I? Okay. That's worse. That's that's better now, isn't it? That's cool. So they were just ordinary people who... Jesus called, said, come follow me. They weren't the elite. They weren't the ones who were the smartest and the cleverest and the ones who knew it all and had it all by, by rote, they were the people who were told to go back to your family business. Look, when I ask the question, is the, is the Great Commission real? I'm not asking it academically or cerebrally because we all go, yes. But I want to ask the question, is it part of your experience? That's what I mean by real. Is it part of your experience? And I want to say this and say it cautiously, 
the gospel, the Great Commission, is not just about what you believe, it's what you care about. It's not just about what you believe, it's what you care about. If I were to say to the congregation this morning, how many people here believe in evangelism? Probably 100% of hands would go up. But if I were to say, how many people here care about your next door neighbour enough to invite them in? Or how many people care enough about what's happening for young ladies in Liberia? Or what's happening? If I, if it's not just about what you believe. That's very academic. That's very cerebral. It's what do you care about? That's what makes the Great Commission real. Not the fact that you intellectually assent to it. It's what makes it very real. That's the important part. You can, you can believe in something but not be changed by it, but you can't care about something and not be changed by it. You can, I could say, how many people believe that the church should be investing in young people? We all go, rah, rah, but how many of us will say, okay, I'm going to take on that on board and I'm going to help mentor and care for and nurture a group of young people? It's a different question. It's not just about what we believe. It's about what we care about. Is the Great Commission real? And there are challenges for, for us as discipleship pathways because sometimes we think a discipleship pathway is just building one group of an, one, one lot of um, knowledge on top of another lot of knowledge. If people just grasp this truth and they just grasp this truth, if they just grasp this, they just get this, then, then they'll be better disciples. No, 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 no. It's good to know stuff. It's really good to be learning in that space. But it's that our hearts are changed. It's the, the commission becomes real to us, that people matter, that we care about people, that it's important for us. Um, that's about what it means to be a kingdom church. That we're a kingdom making a difference in a bigger kingdom and wanting to move the kingdom of God to influence that kingdom. Really important that we understand that. Is the Great Commission real is the question that needs to be asked about this, about this, what's happening in this place. Paul speaks, says persuasively. He, he talks persuasively. It wasn't just theology. But his life, when he, was gotten, when he got booted out of that environment, he just cared so much for the people that he gathered them in another environment and reached out to them and reached out to people who are fortune tellers and jailers and businesswomen. He reached out to all of those. It's really important. That's the first question. Second question is this. And before we're too quick to answer these questions, we need to let them sort of percolate in us I think the second question is this can God really work through me or maybe do I believe God will work through me is perhaps a better question can God really work through me that's an important question I said before these 10 people have been people who were not rejected by their 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 beliefs but didn't do as well as others in their beliefs, and so were back to the family business. And when Jesus said to them, come follow me, and they did, did they really believe that God could work through them? And when you think about what those 12 people, all chosen by Jesus, flawed people, some of them flawed more than others, when you, when you realise what those 12 people saw 
and heard and experienced and they heard Jesus say things and they saw miracles that we'd freak out over. They saw all of that happen. And uh, they were able to say, yeah, we, 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 we see God can work through us. We can see God is able to work in us and through us. And the thing we need to understand when we ask that question is that to understand that God is sovereign, that is, he's above all, and can work beyond reason or logic. We need to get that because we've become very, in the West, very logical, rational kind of people. But God can work beyond reason and logic. I mean, you think of what happened in, in, in that church at, at Ephesus. There were people in the church who, and you wouldn't make a theology around this, but heard Paul and heard the, the power and the conviction that he spoke with and how he lived. And there are people who rushed to touch handkerchiefs that Paul had used and aprons that he'd worn and believed that if they just touched those handkerchiefs and those aprons, they would be healed and they were. And they were. That freaks us out. It freaks me. I think, I think, you know, if we're sitting here this morning and someone walked in to the service this morning right now and said, uh, uh, said to you or came up the front and said to me, look, I need to, I need to touch your handkerchief because I believe if I touch your handkerchief, Tim, then I'll be healed of some sort of disease. I would think that's a bit crazy, wouldn't you? You'd think you're disrupting the service, sit down and do something else. But, but that's what happened. God is able to work beyond what our logic tells us what our rationale tells us. It's, it's a bit freaky for us to understand that in our Western world, which come to, sometimes comes a bit more academic when it comes to faith than it does realistically. Um, it's, now, you don't want to become, you don't want to develop a hanky theology. You know, you, we don't want to build a theology, but God sometimes does stuff that's beyond what we can imagine. I think if you're, told, if you're told people working in a village or somewhere wherever close to, to Margo and said, we're just going to raise $47,000 and get a house, people would go, you're crazy. You're crazy. But God works beyond the crazy and in the crazy sometimes. We've got to be people who, who are, are trusting God to work beyond the rational, beyond reason. It's what prayers are about in that space. When Paul is writing to the Thessalonian church, he says this, For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. See, if the gospel just goes with words, if we just think, if we say the right words and we've learned the right technique, boy, that's going to change people's lives. It's just words. The gospel needs to come with, with power, with truth, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. And that always isn't the way we want it to do. We want it to happen. And one of the problems, and don't get caught up in this illustration, but it's true. But one of the problems is that we see God as the God of everyone else. God is the God of some sort of spiritual guru somewhere, somebody who knows a lot, somebody who's, you know, who, who spruiks. 
We think God is a God of someone else and we listen to testimonies of other people. We go, that's fantastic. But we don't believe really that God could do that through us or through me. And this, this story caused me to ask the question, um, do I believe God can work in his world through me? And we need to percolate on that question because God can and he will and it's how he's always done it. That's what's the extraordinary part of that question. God has a supernatural economy. And when I say a supernatural economy, I mean this. I don't fully understand how we can pray here in Narangbar, Australia, and people's lives are set free in Liberia or Rwanda or India or wherever it might be. I don't fully understand that economy, how that's the way God works. I don't fully understand how you can give $50 or $100 or whatever here and change the lives of people there. That's God's economy. I don't fully grasp that. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than you. I don't understand fully how I can invite my neighbour in for a coffee and all of a sudden just in the, in the common conversation with my neighbour, he opens his life up or she opens her life up and I'm able to open mine up and all of a sudden a conversation goes to things that matter and all I, would do, all I was doing was inviting someone in for a cup of coffee. I don't understand how all that. God's economy is supernatural and the minute we try and make it cerebral or just we can understand, we limit what God can do through you and through me. That's the second question. Can God really work through me? There's a third question which I think is the most provocative and the most disturbing question in this story of Paul at the Ephesian church and it's this question where do you want to be known where do you want to be known this is extraordinary story where there are people watching what Paul did and loving what he did and wanting to get a bit of kudos about what Paul has done so they're out and about doing ministry in the name of Jesus but they didn't really know Jesus but that's it looked pretty good and there were seven sons of a man called Sceva, who was a Jewish high priest, who were out doing this, trying to sort of cast evil spirits out of people in the name of Jesus and, and all of that sort of stuff. And one day, one of the evil spirits spoke back to them. An amazing story. Spoke back to them and said, Paul I know, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? In other words, here's the reality for us. Here's the re- you are known in heaven. God knows you. The scriptures talk about a book where your name is. It's a book of life where people who've come to faith in Jesus are written in. God knows you. He knows every hair on your head. Some of us, not so hard. But he knows everything about you. You are known in heaven. God knows you. You need to understand that and and, uh, be cool with that. And you are known on earth, on this planet in which we walk, people know you. People here know you. People outside know you. Your family knows you. You are known on earth. Um, As a church, we are known on earth. People know that Creekside Community Church meets in this building. People know that we're here this morning. 
We are known on earth. We are known in heaven. But the question that disturbs me is, are we known in hell? And you go, whoa. And by that I mean not some weird sort of statement, not some weird sort of question. But what the evil spirit is saying to these impersonators, really, is saying, you know, um, Paul I know. Boy, Jesus I know. But who are you? In other words, I understand the difference they're making and I understand the difference that Jesus made. I understand the difference that Paul's making. But who the heck are you? Because I don't even know you. You're not even known in my realm. That's a funny question to ask. But are we known in hell? Because we're rattling the cages of hell. Because we're making an impact on hell. Because people are changing their eternal home from one to the other because of us. That's a disturbing question. Is it not? Jesus I know. Paul I know. But who are you? You're not making one iota of difference, he's saying to these seven sons of Sceva. Jesus made a difference. Paul's making a difference. But you're making no difference at all. It's a disturbing question. Where do you want to be made known? Do you want to be known? At, I'm not saying it in some sort of macabre, weird way, but do you want to be known because you are making a difference in the kingdom of, of, of earth? You're making a difference because the gates of hell are rattling because of the work and the impact of your life and my life. Do we want to make that difference in our lives? That's what, what I think is important. And so as a church, some of the things about us some of our knowns are given. This church is known in heaven. You need to know that. Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's, this church is known in heaven. This church is known on earth. But how much are we known in hell? Not because that's a weird question, but because we as a church are rattling the gates. We as a church are involved in changing people's eternal destinies from one to another from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Where do we want to be known? It's nice and comfortable to be known in heaven and earth. It's really cosy and comfortable and we can feel pretty good about it. But do we want to be known to be rattling the gates of hell? That's a disturbing question and perhaps the most, um, the most disturbing or provocative of those, these four. And the last question, are we prepared for the cost? Are we prepared for the cost? There were people who came to faith who brought everything, who burnt stuff, who gave stuff that they, they knew were wrong and, and, and took it and maybe cost them lots of money and just burnt it. And I'm not suggesting we have a fire and all that, stuff like that, but I'm just saying it cost people something to follow Jesus. Are we prepared for the cost? A great old Anglican bishop by the name of William Temple said this, said, the church is the only organisation on the earth that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. Now, that's probably overstated because the church does benefit you if you're a member of the church. It does benefit you. But you get the sentiment, right? The sentiment is that the church is meant to be for people who as yet haven't come to 
a place of faith. There's people who need to discover the love of God, that it changes lives, that there's forgiveness, that there's hope, that there's opportunity, that there's newness, that there's freshness, that there's a spirit of God who wants to dwell within us and make us brand new. There are people who, who need to know that we prepared for the cost of that or is it easier not to pay the cost? I'm not just talking about financial cost. I'm talking about human cost and time cost and energy cost and emotional cost. Are we prepared for that? It's not about, it's not about a program of mission. It's about a life of mission, a, cost, cost, a life that costs something. It's not a program or a project. People are not notches on a belt. People are not projects. Evangelism and mission is not a project we do. It's about who we are. It's about the love of God dwelling within us to such an extent that that love cannot stay in. We have to share that love and grace and truth and life, not just in words but in deeds, with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, Paul says in another place. We need to be people who are doing. That's the cost of that. It's not a project, not a program. It's our life. Jesus said this one day to his disciples as he was stretching out his hand and dying. As the Father sent me, so I send you. And as is a cost to me right now, there'll be a cost to you. I'm sending you the same way. I'm not sending you out in ease and comfort. I'm sending you out in the same way. And you can't lose what you give away. Sometimes we're, so, we're a bit fearful that, you know, when we, when we uh, if this, this Christian stuff will cost us something and we're going to lose something, we're going to lose, you know, energy, we're going to lose time. We're going to, you can't lose what you give away. If you give away, you can't lose. If I give away $50, I can't lose that $50 because I've given it away. If I give away energy into, a, into, a, into a something, I can't lose that energy because I'm giving it away. You can't lose what you give away. It's not yours anymore. So am I prepared to pay the cost um, of what that, what that means? I, I just think the questions around mission are huge. It's not just about what we do one, one Sunday a year or we hear from someone on a screen. That's really crucial because it tells us the story. But it's about living a life. Is the Great Commission real? Do we live it out? Um, do I trust that God can work through me in extraordinary ways? Where do I want to be known and will I pay the cost? That's the story of mission. That's the story we need to ask. It's about prayer. It's about giving. It's about going. It's about responding. It's about hearing. It's about our life and our life's journey. We need to be and we are wanting to be a missional church. A church that's not just gathered, but that's scattered. That's out there making a difference for the kingdom of God in the kingdom of darkness and not being afraid of that and not balking from that. That's the call we have as a missional church. Father, we want to thank you and praise you that you have called us to be your church, to be your people. You've called us to be people who trust you to make a difference. Trust you to impact the world in which we live. To make a difference for the kingdom of light in the kingdom of darkness. Father, I pray that you'll cause us to be challenged by that in a real way. Amen.